When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward, don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Oh boy. Hello. How are you doing this fine day? I'm actually recording this on July 4th. So, um, you know, happy on American Day <laughs> because it doesn't feel very good to be an American right now. But I digress. What I am here to do is talk to people who are involved in independent music, who care about it, who produce it, who document it, whatever it is, as long as they care about this beautiful scene we call punk and hardcore and indie rock and emo and whatever. I have Joe McMahon from Smoker Fire on the episode today. Smoker Fire is what I would say a highly underrated band in the uh, early to mid 2000s was putting out a decent amount of stuff on Fat Records. They were previously called uh, Jericho RVA, I want to say. And, um, I just I fell in love with the band from the moment that I first heard them and followed them along on their career, and uh, they recently started to you know put their music out again. Like uh, this most recent release of theirs is a collection of older stuff, sort of B sides. Uh, came out on Iodine Records, and uh, I highly suggest that you get into the band now if you like anything sort of anthemic and punk and full of harmonies. You'll hear a bit of them as I uh, play it into the interview, but uh, I love the band. And once the opportunity came across my desk, I was like, yes, I know very little because I actually, yeah, thinking around, I don't think that I actually saw Smoker Fire when they were around. But um, yeah, anyways, we got that conversation and I highly suggest that you put some Smoker Fire into your life because you will, uh, you'll enjoy it. I, I promise. I can, I can almost guarantee that. But let's get some business pleasantries out of the way. You can always email the podcast, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. You can also leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, and then you can leave a rating on Spotify. All of those things help this show get discovered. And uh, I've recently seen, and I know this sounds like a kind of hyperbolic or silly thing to say, downloads. (laughs) They are quite substantial as of late. I've been noticing, you know, a 10 to 20% increase month over month over uh, listeners. And that's awesome. And I really appreciate that. But before we talk to Joe, I have to pontificate and tell you how incredible of a time I had over in the United Kingdom doing my very first live podcasts ever. And it's so awesome to say that. But I did them at a festival called Outbreak Fest which first of all, was probably one of the most organized festivals I had ever been a part of. Like I put on a music festival, Sound and Fury, from about, I don't know, 2010 to 2012 or 2013. So three years. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, it is one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. And then on top of it, to actually have it run smoothly is like next level. And this festival was so on point. I can't tell you, like, everything ran on time. Everybody felt taken care of. Like, I just, I was thoroughly impressed. There was, like, around 5,000 people there. An unbelievable music festival. You need to uh, travel over there next year. I highly recommend it because the lineup was bonkers. But I had the privilege of sort of hosting, curating a their podcast slash talk stage 
And it was so enjoyable. Got to sit down with people for about a half an hour, chop it up with them. And it was really, really fun. People showed up. I mean, there was some of the conversations I had, there was like, I don't know, two, 300 people there watching. It was kind of overwhelming for (laughs) something that I went in there being like, yeah, maybe some people will show up. Like, I don't know. We'll see how this goes. And uh, to have all of my expectations completely flipped over and subverted was amazing. So Shout out to Outbreak Fest. Shout out to all the people who make that thing run. It is uh, like, even if I was not attending in a professional capacity, I would look at the footage yourself and make up your mind to understand that you need to attend this thing next year. So I'll be releasing some of those uh, live interviews over the next coming weeks and you'll be able to check them out. So yeah, loved it. So much fun. But anyways, let's talk to Joe McMahon from Smoke or Fire. I first discovered you guys way back when you were called uh, Jericho RVA, and or actually just Jericho, mm-hmm. and you changed into Jericho RVA, correct? Correct, yeah. I was working at an independent record store here in Southern California, and uh, I remember I got the promo of the the first release. And I usually, and I'm sure you can attest to this, if you work at a record store or someone hands you a record, and it's like, eventually I'll listen to it, just maybe fly to the top of your priority right. list. And uh, I remember listening to it and I was like, oh, dude, this is actually good. This is cool. Like I was pleasantly surprised. (laughs) And I also thought it fit completely in with the Gainesville scene. And I I always thought that was interesting that your first release was on iodine. I'm sure that this was, I guess, maybe a constant thing that you found yourself and the band in where you necessarily didn't fit in with every scene, but you were like, oh yeah, we're punkish, hardcore adjacent, like all this stuff, but we're not like firmly planted in any one scene. Is that kind of reflective over your experience or am I just reading too much into it? No, you're absolutely right. I think it came from just all of the different tastes of music that we had. And yeah, in one way that was like really good for us because we could get put on any show. We could be, we could play on the hardcore shows. We could play on the punk shows. We could, we could open for anybody back when we were first starting. And then on the other side, yeah, we didn't really knew, know where we fit in, like on, on what label or what genre. But I think that was always like, for me, for writing, I just never wanted to be put in a category. If you do that, then you never want to write a record where people say that doesn't sound like them. Or it's really different. So it was always very important for me to have all the songs be very like their own thing and never put in a box somewhere for sure. And I think that's why I immediately put you guys into the kind of Gainesville scene, as it were, even though you were not from that part of the country. Yes, East Coast, but not from Florida. And I, I felt like you yeah. you fit into that more easily than maybe just being a kind of quote unquote, typical fat records band or a nitro records band or whatever, insert the name of any punk label after that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we Boston music scene in the late nineties when we started was incredible, but we idolized the Gainesville scene and we idolized the Richmond scene, the Vale strike anywhere. Yeah. All the bands in Gainesville, all that stuff. I mean, that those were the bands that we, we really looked up to. Yeah. You can definitely hear that in the sound for sure. Absolutely. And we'll, pick apart some of that in a little bit, but you yourself, were you actually born and raised in the Western Mass area or where did you come up? Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts in Western Mass. It's funny because when I tell people I'm from Western Mass, they say they're like, oh, Worcester, which is like 30 minutes from Boston. But it's now the other side, like basically the New York border, Western Massachusetts. I grew up there and I moved to Boston when I was like 17 or 18 to go to, I went to Boston University School of Fine Arts. Yeah. I didn't want to go to college. I just wanted to get the hell out of the woods and start a band. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Western. We'll move into this city. Yeah. Western Mass is so interesting because most people do connect it with just wait. There's still state over there. Like people live over there. I thought it was just the Boston area. Yeah. (laughs) Or it's like. Yeah. The Berkshires. People from New York know more about the Berkshires than people from Massachusetts because it's basically. Or people from New York go to go antiquing and have summer homes and stuff. Right. 
Sure. So was that kind of reflective of your experience where it was just, for lack of a better term, rural living? Yeah, for sure. It, for me, I understand why so many people don't like, you can't judge anybody by like the music they're into and stuff. Because where I grew up, we had Tape World at the mall and we had the radio. And so unless you have that cool uncle or older brother or that friend in school that gives you that first punk rock tape, you don't even realize this music exists. And for me, it was it's like, it was my friend Pete, his uncle lived in Boston and he used to work for the Mighty Boss Towns. And he gave Pete a tape when we were 15. And on one side, it was the Boss Towns. And on the other side, it was Operation Ivy. And me and Jeremy, Smoker Fire's guitar player, we heard that tape and we just lost our mind and we bought guitars because we'd never heard anything like that before. I love that. Other than that, yeah. That's yeah. I know. didn't exist. I, I love that experience where you can, tr you hear something and then you immediately want to take action, whatever that action may mean. It's, oh, I got to get a guitar right now. Oh yeah. It was literally like Jeremy looked at me and he was like, I'm buying a guitar. And I said, okay, I guess I'll buy a bass. And that was it. And we started a band, 15. Yeah. And then from that experience, you just hunt down every everything you can find after that. So then it was Fugazi and Rancid and yeah, we were just hooked. We were hooked on it. Right. What kind of a kid were you, I guess, maybe prior to that in regards to going to school and playing sports? Like, what were you into? Were you an indoor kid, outdoor kid? Where'd you classify yourself? My father was actually a professional baseball player and his father, my grandfather was a professional baseball player. He played for Cincinnati Reds. Everyone in my family played baseball. So I was raised with like balls coming in my face, like a hundred miles. And like my father wanted me to be a baseball player and my brothers. And so, yeah, it was a lot focused on sports. I can't say it was a particularly fun experience because I wasn't that good. I have terrible eyesight. And so I went in the direction of, I was an artist. I was into drawing. I was into music, the opposite of being like a jock and stuff like that. Yeah. So the sports thing didn't really pan out and that was fine, but I ended up going to tell cool. But my passion was always music. That's really what I grew up just as far back as I can remember, just dreaming of just playing music and being on stage and stuff. I had two older brothers, but yeah, I was, I spent a lot of time alone growing up, to be honest, which I think was fine because it is where I think I got my imagination and, and I spent a lot of time in my head. And so for me, I think it's why when it came to music, I was a bit fearless because to me, like the, it, it wasn't about being afraid to do it. I just was like, this, this is what I'm going to do. It's normal. I'm going to, I'm going to start a band. I'm going to play music the rest of my life. And that's what did your, in regards to the baseball lineage that's in your family, was there, I guess, a mystique? around that in regard to the fact that not everybody's parent plays in the major league, so to speak. So w was there, I guess, a specialness attached to that where your friends were like, oh man, that's cool. Your dad plays ball or whatever. Or was it just, that's my dad and that's what he does. That was weird because I knew my dad was a ball player and I knew he loved baseball and I knew he wanted us to play baseball, but it wasn't talked about a whole lot because all I knew was that after my oldest brother, Eddie was born, my dad didn't play baseball anymore. And, I, and then it wasn't really talked about a whole lot, but I would be around people in town sometimes and people would say to me like, your father was the best shortstop I've ever seen in my life. And he, had, he won like four gold gloves and he was really good, but he didn't really talk about his career a whole lot. And I think later on, I learned that he just had to make a decision to to be a father after my brother was born. I think he had an injury or something. And he just was like, okay. And he ended up going and working at a bank for 24 years after that, which didn't make him particularly happy. And I think like the only time that him and I really came close to having a conversation about it was when I was 15 and I had our first band in high school. And it was before I had my driver's license and my father picked me up one day from band practice on a Saturday. And I'd written my first song and we recorded it on a tape. And I got in the car and I put the tape in the, in the car in the cassette player. And I was like, dad, I wrote my first song. And of course it was awful, but I hit play and my dad pulled the car over and he said, you love this, don't you? And I said, yeah, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And he said, don't. He said, go to school, get married, get a job 
and play it safe because this will break your heart. And then he turned the car back on and drove us home. So I think that, I think that kind of explains a lot of where, yeah, his mentality was with following your dreams. No, well, honestly, he's not wrong, but at the same time, there is that, there, there is that element of what you're talking about where, yeah, it's going to, a life of creative pursuits is going to break your heart and be difficult to manage, but it's not like you could pursue that practice of playing baseball. Like, yes, he could have been a sports writer or whatever, just like being able to creatively right. think about these things. Whereas a person like yourself who has been able to tour a lot, put out a lot of music and do all these things that people dream to have happen. It's not like that was easy because you were just, you were hustling. You were trying to put all these things together. And that's, there's, yeah, I think there's truth I think in that. I think that's the difference is that I, and I, I was 15. I didn't understand at the time. And there were times later where I was on the side of a highway with a van on fire where I was like, oh, I know what he means. But uh, I think the difference, like with sports and with baseball, the goal is to be like number one and be the best. And that was never my ambition with music. I just wanted to do it for myself. It was never about being rich or famous or being the best. It was just something that I needed to do. And I think that that was probably what he didn't understand about the music thing was, I'm not doing this to be, to reach some level of success. This is something that I just have to do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's different levels of what success may mean and success to a person like yourself is maybe just the collection of experiences in your metaphysical backpack as opposed to, oh man, I got financial safety here. So that's not my, that's not my end game. Yeah. You can tell that when you meet, you can tell the difference when you meet musicians who came up and played basements and the house shows and worked their way up because they're the same. When you meet the Chuck Reagans and the Tim Berries and the bands that are that you grew up just loving and you meet them and they're just the realest people in the world. You can tell those people came up and are so thankful that you, you never thought you'd get out of the basement as opposed to the bands that sort of skipped right to the top. Those are the bands that break up quick, but you get a flat tire and they're like, fuck, I think you can tell the difference. Yeah, this is hard. I can't handle this. But when you, when you sleep on floors for five years, then, you know, you appreciate everything after that. Every time someone feeds you, puts on a good show, like you just remember how tough it used to be. And so you appreciate it. Yeah. You're like, wait a minute, I can actually sleep in a bed tonight. That's pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. I'm 43 years old and I still sleep on my couch every night just because when we were touring for so long in the beginning and sleeping on floors, if you got the couch, it was like royalty. And I still sleep on the couch every night and I have a nice bed in a bedroom, but I just prefer the couch. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Pretty soon you're going to sleep out in the driveway in a van, just be like, guys, this is the best spot during the summer. I wouldn't mind. Honestly, I'd be like, oh, good living. <laughs> <laughs> totally. If someone's got to watch the van so no one steals stuff. Got to do it. You, like you said, with your introduction to independent music, and then you immediately wanted to play in a band and write music and whatever, whatever attempt that was at that time. I, I'm going to guess that your attraction to that pretty much just left everything by the wayside in regards to school and other pursuits. It was basically wholehearted. Let's do a band. Let's play shows, do that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I graduated from the school of fine arts in Boston and I had no intention of going out and getting a job, I full on just couldn't wait to graduate and just play music full-time, much to the pleasure of my parents. That I think they didn't talk to me for three years after that. I think my mom said, so you're going to, so you graduated from a really good school with honors and you're going to choose to play your crappy music in a stinky van with your shitty friends. And I was like, yep, <laughs> yep, that's what I'm going to do. I like that idea of the fact that you were quote unquote practical enough to be like, okay, I'm going to finish high school finish college, I'll get this piece of paper, and then I'll be able to yeah. do whatever I want. So it's like your parents theoretically couldn't have any direct opposition against it. They wouldn't understand it, but they couldn't be like, oh man, Joe, you flushed your life down the toilet. You're dropping out in ninth grade or whatever. Right. It's No, I did the thing, but I'm not going to do the other thing. Yeah, it was important for me to finish that thing and have that. But to be honest, my entire 
reason for going to college was to move to the city to find people to play with. My first day of school, my first class was illustration in 1997. And the kid walking in front of me into class had a backpack with an avail patch on it. And I poked him on the shoulder and he turned around and I was like, do you play guitar? And he goes, yeah. And I said, I play bass, do you want a band? And he just looked at me and was, he was like, what? And the funny thing is, his name was Chris and he was in a band from New Hampshire called Born Ugly. And the singer Andy ended up moving up to California to play with Screw 32 and some other West Coast bands. So these guys were actually looking for, to start a new band. And him and I became friends. He thought I was insane to introduce myself that way, but that's what I ended up trying out for what became Jericho. I tried out to play bass and after the first practice, the singer quit and they said, you can be in the band, but you have to sing. And I said, I don't know how to sing. And they said, that's the deal. And I said, okay, then I'll sing. Listen, you like music. You like to support it, right? Buying records. That's all great. But how about merch? Let's be honest. Merch is one of the most fun things that you could do when you're supporting your favorite band, because not only do you get to wear a piece of merchandise that displays your love for them, and you can have conversations with people about that, but on top of it, the band gets paid. And why is that important? It's because we exist in an era of bootlegs that is just, you know, no bands are seeing that money. But Rockabilia, make sure that bands get paid lickety split. It's amazing. Use this promo code, 100 words or less. That tells them that this show sent you. And then on top of it, you get 10% off your entire order. I can't stress that enough. 10% off your entire order. So you could spend $100 and you get $10 off. That's like me putting money right back into your pocket. And you're getting a bunch of cool stuff for it. So like I said, Rockabilia is the place where you can buy all of your band merch, ships to you from the Midwest, independently owned and operated, and they know what's up. They have over half a million items. You can just spend hours searching on their website in the most fun way possible. So promo code 100 words or less, 10% off. Enjoy the journey. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. As usual, there's that idea of just, it doesn't matter if you don't know how to sing. Like, well, we'll be able to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They were just like, that's the deal. Cause no one else wants to sing. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll sing. Cause I want to be in the band. So right. you figure it out. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention or whatever that saying is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I couldn't sing a note. If you could hear those, I have tapes of our first shows. And I, honestly, when I'm telling you, I could not sing a note, but I was always a decent writer. I was always pretty good at like writing. And it was bands like Hot Water Music, like I, those guys can sing. But the first time I heard Forever and Counting, that record, I'd never heard anything like that before. And it just bounced off of me. And I just went, a friend gave it to me right when I was trying to be in this band. And I heard it. And I'd never heard anything like that before. And he said, listen to it again, but read the lyrics. And I sat there and I listened to it. And I read the lyrics and the lyrics were so amazing and powerful. And that was it. And I said, okay, I don't know how to sing, but I can write. 
So I'll figure this out. And so that became the focus. Like, it's more important what you're saying than how you sound, you know? Well, especially too, where the common conception of how a person should sing is framed around what you have already heard, i.e. the radio, going to church, your mom or dad singing in the car. And so the moment that you hear that you can be like, oh, I don't need to be polished and I don't need to be hitting like notes per se. I can just be pushing air melodically and that'll be okay. Absolutely. Yeah. That changed my entire perception of that stuff because I read those lyrics and I was like, oh, it's not about how you sing. It's about what you say. And so that changed everything for me. Yeah. And so I'm guessing because you were really focused on on playing music and doing playing in a band and figuring whatever that meant out, it sounds like you were responsible in the way that you were navigating through the world to a varying degree, I'm sure. Were you like partying as a kid? Were you messing around with things you probably shouldn't have been doing? Or were you, no, my focus is really on the fact that I want to play in a band and yeah, whatever, I'll smoke a few cigarettes or whatever, but I'm not going to let that let that derail me. I, w- I was pretty straight laced growing up when all the kids in high school were drinking. I wasn't, but that was, to be honest, that was because I, I came from, a, my last name is McMahon. I came from a lineage of people with problems with alcohol and not just drinking, but being mean and abusive. And so I, I really literally thought when you grew up, when I was growing up, I thought when you drank, it made you punch people. So I didn't drink for a long time. And then when I finally did start drinking, I realized that it had nothing to do with that. I've never hurt anyone in my life. And I'm a very happy drunk. So yeah, I was. we were known as hardcore drinkers, our band for sure. As far as the drug stuff, it's weird because I'm, when my mom did finally talk to me and I was, we were going to all this stuff and she, she was very worried that she said, you're going to get into drugs because that's what bands do. Cause she grew up in the seventies and so sixties yep. and seventies. And the thing is, to be honest with you, like, I think I'd lost two very close friends of mine to drug overdoses before I even, before we even played our 10th show. So that was something that I just never had any desire to like to be a part of sure yeah i guess the reason i ask that is because i mean there is that idea especially attached to the punk rock slash gainesville lifestyle as it were that 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 is usually connected to the two where it's oh yes of course i'm going to do this and some people have obviously gone further down that rabbit hole but it's good you were able to obviously keep your head about you where it never got too dark to where you couldn't exist and be able to creatively pursue what you wanted to. Yeah, it's definitely a thing that's part of the scene. It's something that I've thought about a lot the last two years, to be honest, because in the music community, I think there's so many people that kind of found a family there. I think there's a lot of people that come from some pain in the past. I think that's a common theme. And I think alcohol comes with that and drug abuse and things like that comes as well. And I think the last two years with Corona and watching there be no music literally for two years, I've seen a lot of people that I know is like mental health really take a hit and mine as well, because my music was always my therapy. That that was it for me. And I realized like I had to really dial it down at a certain point because back in the day, like when you're playing in a band and you're playing shows every night and you're touring, like it's celebrated that you drink and you party and people are happy to drink and party with you. When that's not there and you're just drinking for no reason, it hits you like, I got, I need to dial this back because, you know, it's not so cool. Yeah. Like you said, there, there isn't a good time if you're drinking at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and you're not on right. tour. And yeah, it's, wait a minute, what right. am I doing? Yeah. On tour, it's, oh yeah, of course, that's what you're doing. But when you're by yourself, yeah, like you said, like at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, it's not cool. It's not a good thing. No one's looking at that and being like, you know what, Joe, great choice. Great life choice right there. Right. Uh, I know that like you definitely went through a lot of challenges in regards to, or at least I'm assuming that the, the band name challenges that you guys went through at the beginning of the band's life from Jericho to Jericho RVA to Smoke and Fire, what you eventually landed on. 
Was that just completely torturous? And yeah, was that just completely torturous or was that just, ah, whatever, we'll do it and we'll move on for it? Jericho was the band that I was trying out to be in. And to be honest, I never liked that name because we would get asked all the time if we were a Christian rock band. I was raised Irish Catholic and I can't stand religion. So it always bothered me when people would assume or ask if we were a Christian rock band. So when we had to change the name, I was not upset. I was stoked, to be honest. Well, we basically just, there was a Christian rock band named Jericho and they owned the rights to the, na the name. And we added the RVA to try and get a get away from it because the whole thing was like, you don't want to, you've been working your ass off for four years and you're getting somewhere. You don't want to start over with a new name kind of thing. But when we got signed to fat, they straight up were like, you have to have a new name. And that was only difficult because the record was already recorded above the city. Our first record on fat was already recorded and it was ready to go to press. And they basically said, you guys have four days to, to give us a new name. And we were on tour at the time and we were like, we were just sitting around all day, just like spitballing and like throwing shit around. And we would, and the old manager of Fat Mark, we, I would, I would be texting him like, what about this? What about this? And he'd get on Google and be like, no, there's a DJ in Norway that has that name. Can't do it. kind of thing. And yeah, so when we finally, we were in New Jersey and we were playing this old drinking game that we used to play in Boston called Up and Down the River. And the first, the first thing in the game is smoke or fire. Is your card black or red? And I just went, I looked at the guys and I was like, smoke or fire? And they were like, I don't know, text Mark. And I texted him and he was like, done. The record's going to print. I'm like, <laughs> so <laughs> there's some people hear that story and they're like, oh, I thought it was this really deep meaning and stuff, but it really wasn't. It really wasn't. Yeah. Well, it, especially, especially when you boil down most band names, when you actually look at it for what it is, very yeah. few things are attached to an actual meaning. It's like, the meaning is imbued by the art rather than reverse engineering it where it's, I'm going to name my band something so prolific or yeah. thought. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you can't. Funny, you, you, can, you can tell sometimes these bands that had no idea they were going to be huge and they probably look back and they go, what the fuck were we thinking when they named the band? Because ultimately, like, you can have a terrible band name and if you're a great band, people will eat that shit up. They will wear the t-shirt. But it's funny sometimes you can be like, what, what were they thinking? It's like the worst name ever, but yeah. Oh, yeah. But, it's a, yeah. but it doesn't matter when you actually, when people start identifying with the art rather yeah. than the if you're names. good, If you're good, you can get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I think it just pops in my head, but it's like My Chemical Romance where it's, yes, like that, it has a certain ring to it. But at the same time, it's just My Chemical Romance, like you, you love chemicals. <laughs> Okay. All right. I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Uh, but the reason I ask about the name change is because I know it's especially in our independent music scene, whereas you feel so protective over bands, regardless of whether punk, hardcore, indie rock, like you feel so protective when bands have to go through that. I so distinctly remember when you're a fellow Boston band of a American Nightmare had to change their name because it was a dumb bar band or whatever. I just, I myself, that had no skin in the game whatsoever besides really liking American Nightmare, like writing the other American Nightmare, the bar band, like writing them an email, kind of going yeah. at them. And it's, the hell am I doing? Give it up. I'm like, what am I doing? Did, become, what, did they become Give Up the Ghost or something? They did, yeah. They came that, yeah, yeah. but then eventually it just didn't, it went away because that American Nightmare band, like once their copyright ended or whatever, it's like they, yeah. they weren't going to, continually protect their copyright it's not they're done it doesn't matter that, that was the thing with us the band that owned the name jericho they were a christian rock they were just a band that used to play covers at church in in the middle of nowhere and we wrote them about the whole thing and they said give us ten thousand dollars and i wrote them back and i said we don't have ten dollars totally. and that was it that was it yeah. and i said and i, I think i said p.s how very christian of you but uh, totally. That's the only communication <laughs> you're going to have with them. You're like, the best thing I could do is give you 10% of our pressing and then you could sell those for maybe, maybe a couple thousand dollars. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, yeah. Number one, I never liked the name Jericho, to be honest. So there was that. And then I think getting signed to Fat Records, it was like, it's, it's not gonna, it's not like starting over and being like, oh, we're smoke or fire now. It's, we're getting signed to a really amazing label and 
the word's going to get out. So it, it wasn't a hard transition, to be honest. Yeah, uh, that totally makes sense, especially too, where I've heard stories about fat, and I'm sure you could tell me a few as well, where they, the collective that is that label has very hard opinions on like, oh yeah, you should do this or you shouldn't do this. They're never going to be unequivocal about it. So once they told you that is, yeah, I see your point. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. We can do that. You're, you guys are investing money in us. So we'll play ball. We understand we need to change a band name. Yeah. They said, this is going to be a hassle down the road. Are you guys like, you guys want to take the easy way or you guys want to? And I was like, no, let's change the name. And they're like, cool, let's go. Yeah. And speaking of that fat affiliation where, you know, that definitely felt like you guys jumped a level up. No slight against iodine because they obviously did you guys right. And then the full sort of the full circle of releasing your newest stuff through them or making your old material available again, I should say. So I'm sure the approach from fat was, whoa, like they're interested in us. What's the vibe here? I'm sure you have stories about signing to them and working with them initially. It's funny because the one of the first things you said in, in the podcast reminds me of, I think, how it started a little bit. Like when you talk about getting that CD and just being like, oh, whatever. We There used to be this festival in Louisville called Crazy Fest. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it was amazing. And I think like maybe seven or eight of us, we all drove down there from Boston and we just burned a bunch of CDs and just to hand out at this place. We were just trying to get people to listen to us. We'd never really had a real tour or anything and we just wanted people to hear it. So we'd always burn CDs. We went down there and we're all sitting in our hotel room in the Super 8 or some shit. And we're drinking beers in, in the hotel before we go off to the show. And one of the guys looks out the window and he goes, holy shit, that's Tim Barry." And Tim from Avail is standing outside and we were just huge. I think almost everyone in the room had an Avail tattoo. And it, and at the same time, he looks in the window and sees us and he just opens the door and he walks in and he goes, what's up, y'all? And he's like, oh, you guys got PBR in a bottle? And we were like, yeah, man, uh, the tub is full of ice and PBRs and bottles. And he just says, word, can I have one? And we're like, yeah. And he just sits down with us and starts hanging out. And we were just like, what the fuck? And we hung out and we ended up going to the show with him. And I gave him a CD and I said, hey, man, I know everyone does this to you, but this is our band. And Tim goes, I'm probably not going to listen to this, man. And I said, that's totally fine. I got you. And so the next day we go back for day two of Crazy Fest in the morning and all these people are running up to me. They're going, hey, Tim's looking for you. And I'm like, Tim Barry's looking for you. And. He came up to me and he was just like, dude, I listened to your record last night. It's amazing. I love it. And he was so kind. And he starts going straight into talking about recording and what to do, what not to do, like that kind of shit. And we ended up all be like becoming friends and Avail took us on our, like our first real tour. They were on tour with The Curse, Dave Haas's old band. And they oh, broke yeah. up halfway through the, this US tour and Avail called us and they said, hey, you guys want to do a couple weeks starting tomorrow? And we were like, yep. And we quit our jobs and we met the next day. But it goes down to Tim ended up sending our record to his, to a friend at Fat Records. And they put it on in the office for a couple of weeks. And everyone was listening to it and being like, this is, they're all like, this is fucking good. And they eventually said, hey, should we give this to Mike? And they, the story, I guess, goes, they gave it to Mike. And he called the office like 30 minutes later. He was like, we're signing these guys. Dude, I love that story for so many reasons, partially because I think that when, like we were talking about at the very beginning, when you don't firmly plant yourself in a scene or have come up in a particular scene where it's, oh, yes, we are a straight edge hardcore band or like a pop punk easy core band or whatever the hell. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that people are impressed when it's just, oh, OK, cool. Iodine releasing this punk adjacent record. It's firmly planted in that. And I think exactly what you're talking about, where someone listens to it and is, oh, dude, not only is this really good, but this is really good. This is like exceptionally put together. And I think that's what like endears people even more to it because they are uh, surprised. Their expectations are completely flipped on its head. Yeah. And you just never think about yourself that way. I don't know. I, I don't. I still don't. I, like at the time when Fat Mike called me, I was working 
the midnight to 8 a.m. shift at a 24-hour diner, having guns pulled on me and all this shit. And I went home and it was like 8 o'clock in the morning and I was so stressed out. My phone rang and it was, hey, is this Joe? Yeah. Hey, this is Fat Mike. And I was like, whatever. And I hung up. No, I didn't hang up. That was different. I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, I want to sign you guys. And I go, okay. And he goes, yeah. And then he goes, I've never signed a band before that I haven't met. Are you guys cool? And I was like, I think we're pretty cool. And he goes, okay, cool. Talk to you later. <laughs> and then I called Jeremy, our guitar player. And I said, hey, Fat Mike just called me. And he, they want to sign us. And he hung up on me. And he goes, fuck you. And he hung up on me. And I called him back. I called him back. And I said, dude, I'm serious. And he goes, okay. And we all just called in sick to work and went to the bar and got really drunk. Yeah. He goes, wait, we got to commiserate over this. I think we're getting signed, but like, what the hell's happening? This is insane. Oh, it, it was insane. Yeah, absolutely. It was insane. That's incredible. The weird thing is that when we recorded the record in Boston, we didn't even have enough money to finish the record. And the engineer, Ethan, who, who just remixed and remastered this thing on iodine at the time, when we recorded that record, he said, we're going to finish the record. And he said, I'm telling you, Fat's going to sign you guys and they can pay the rest of it when they sign you guys. And we just laughed and we we're like, Fat Records just never going to fucking sign us, dude. And he was like, I'm telling you, he said it from the beginning. It's weird. That's wow. Yeah, that is the confidence level is very <laughs> off the charts there. Yeah, crazy. And then after after that point, you guys were already touring, like you said, pretty actively before you'd signed to Fat. And then I know you guys did so much after that. Did you, I guess, enjoy the touring experience right away? I know people have an evolution of thoughts in regards to touring from the highs and lows of it, but did you always take like duck to a water with it? Yes. I think it was one of my big, biggest attractions to playing music was I've always wanted to travel and see the world. And so to me, it seemed like a pretty cool way to do it. There are people that, that aren't meant to do it, I can tell you, and they figure that out pretty quick. For me, it it was just the biggest fucking privilege in the world to, to travel and be in a different place every day. I'm still not sick of it. And I'm old. I've been to 45 countries. When we did the 50-state tour with Against Me, 87 shows in three and a half months, that's, to me, I think I will look back, that will always be one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life, to do the 50-state tour. And then to go off and go to Japan and Australia, New Zealand, everywhere in Europe, Russia. It's crazy to me that I get to go wherever I want and people pay me to go there. That's insane. That's right. insane. <laughs> no, totally. It's insane. How, how did you interact with kind of the business of the band once it came to the idea? And I use the term business maybe loosely, like once you actually start getting oh, wow, we got $150 for the show or obviously signing to fat and looking at the contract. And was that always kind of something that you enjoyed doing or was that just a sort of necessary evil in order to keep the band going? No, that's something that we were absolutely always terrible at, 100% awful at. We, I think that's where bands make the big mistake because they think like it's not punk to be smart about business it's okay whatever because we came up playing basements and houses and all this stuff and we never asked for money and we got paid it was nice and all that kind of thing and we weren't smart about it when it came time to be smart about it we just felt like we'll get what we get but it's not smart and so many bands make that mistake you get taken advantage of and people treat you the way that you allow them to treat you we got hosed Got money forever. And the thing that sucks is ultimately that puts a lot of stress on the band and the people. And when you're, when you're going home with no money, trying to pay your rent and stuff, it's tough. It's tough. I remember like there was one year where I was, we were out 10 months on tour for 10 months straight. And my girlfriend at the time saying to me, I do not understand you. And I said, why? And she said, I can't imagine going to work every day and not knowing if you're going to get a paycheck on Friday. Yeah. But I guess that's, that's what, it, that's what you do when you love something. Yeah. 
Totally. Yeah. You throw yourself into it, even though there is little quote unquote financial reward that's at the end of that rainbow. It's just the pursuit of it. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's good, but you're one engine seizing in your van away from disaster. You're one van dying on the side of the road or getting your gear stolen out of the trailer at some point, kind of staying away from having complete disaster all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And like you were talking about, as you guys continue to tour and the whether it's financial implications and people growing older and having different priorities in their lives, and as you, you the band's tour life started to die down, was that difficult for you to either transition or wrap your head around where it was like, I've been known this entire time as Joe Smoker Fire or whatever, or like how everyone puts their band names in their phones. Was that was that a difficult transition or was it something that you felt opened up other opportunities that you were excited to explore? I was really fortunate because when that stuff with the band uh, died down, I was moving to Europe to move to Germany. So to start doing like the solo stuff and become a solo artist, I was really fortunate because we did pretty well in Europe and stuff. So I had a foot in the door as far as, oh, it's Joe from Smoker Fire. When it came to booking and doing stuff, it really helped me out. And so it made the transition a lot easier to take on that new direction with the good tours that we had in Europe and stuff. It it made it a lot easier for me to make that transition to, to be a solo artist. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Because I know that you guys did your fair share of touring over in Europe, and there has a tendency for bands of your guys' genre to have a more quote-unquote successful career, and maybe using air quotes in there, but be able to write on that in ways that sometimes it's really jarring for people to hear where of, oh yes, a band like uh, whatever, Boy Sets Fire, not picking on them by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, oh yeah, in Germany, they can play like 10,000 people. And here in the yeah. States, here in the States, it'd be like, they can't draw 150 people here in California. Like, what? That's crazy. So it's, I'm sure. It's amazing. It's a perfect example. Boy Sets Fire are fucking gods in Germany. It's crazy. <laughs> it, totally. And it, and then other other bands where it's, oh yeah, you can't draw a hundred people in your hometown, but yeah, they could, any festival in Europe to over a hundred thousand people or whatever. Oh yeah. I know there, I know I have friends, bands in, in America that can't, they couldn't tour in America. They only toured in Europe. They were huge in Europe and they couldn't draw five people in America. They didn't even bother. It's fun. It's funny. Did so a, a, as you started to notice that you were getting some notoriety over there. Was it interesting for you to be like, oh, I guess we'll do more tours over here, explore that, and then obviously you picked up stakes and left the states. Was that weird for you to experience in Europe? Yeah, it was weird. It's weird everywhere. It's still weird to me. Like to to, it's that whole kid in the basement with your guitar mentality, like. It's insane to go into a different country and have people sing your songs and know who you are and that stuff. Japan was the biggest example of that. To be in a place where people do not speak a word of English and know the words to your songs is so humbling and so insane. I can't even put into words. Americans don't do that. Americans don't learn songs in different languages so to be somewhere where people don't speak the language and they know your songs anywhere is is absolutely insane but as far as the europe thing i mean our first european tour was deconstruction tour i think it was 2007 and that was that happened very fast fat records called us and there was this band called what were they called pepper i think they're called pepper and they were they ended up having some kind of hit songs so they dropped off the tour to go record a video or something and basically fat records called us and they were like hey do you guys have passports and we we're like no and they're like get passports you're going to europe in a week and we we're like okay 
So all of a sudden we're in Europe for six weeks. And the things like when I was in, as soon as I landed in Germany and in Europe, I just felt like this is where I belong. Like, I don't know how to describe it, but it was just a different mentality and a different feeling. And that's why I ultimately moved here seven years ago. Yeah, no, that's incredible that you, I think you articulated it very well, where it's the experience that you have in playing to different people of different cultures. And it can feel even the same way in the States where it's you play to whatever, some third tier city that doesn't get visited and all of a sudden you're there and people are just like thank you so much for coming to our town because no one ever pays attention to us or Go whatever to the best place. yeah to the best places totally when we like for example like when we did that 50 state tour with against me we played in alaska they hadn't had a show in alaska in three years a show like, I think Metallica was supposed to play there and they canceled. So you got this show and I think they ended up turning away 500 people from this show. And it wasn't about the bands playing. It was literally like people being like, there's a band coming here. <laughs> and so you know, like a thousand people want to go out and see a live band. Those are the best places. I've played New York City a hundred times. You want to play in Alaska. That's the place you want to be. Right. You know? Yeah, you got to find your Alaska. People in New York City just sit outside and smoke cigarettes and like, yeah, I was at that show. Because they see it all. You want to be in Alaska. That's the place you want to be. I love that. The last two things I want to hit on was the fact that you, you obviously, like you mentioned, moved over to Germany. And I know you've done a lot of producing and continue to be active with your solo project and stuff like that. The And then... Smoker Fire circles back around to have your new iodine release. I'm guessing it's just, it's very much a labor of love to bring something like that to life. And then ironically on the label that got you guys your first release, is that just a weird sort of full circle coincidence moment? The iodine release. Correct. It's a really, I gotta tell you, it's such a wild experience because it was such a big deal for us at the time with iodine putting out the record and then and then with right when the record was coming out the label folded in case he left and everything and we had no idea what happened i had no idea it just didn't happen and we ended up moving to richmond get signed to fast that was like water under the bridge i just never really looked back i said well, things happen though they happen and when casey got back in touch with me a, a couple of years ago at first i really shrugged it off and i just said hey don't worry about it it's not a big deal like things happen it's all good and when he kind of told me the label was coming back together and really expressed interest in, in like putting this back out, I hadn't listened to that record in so many years. But we played those songs up until the end, always. A lot of those songs on there were staples in our live set until the very end. <clears throat> I went back and listened to the record and I, I think it, before I listened to it, I thought, I wrote these songs 20 years ago. This, is this going to hold up? When I listened to it, I was like, yeah, this shit really holds up. These songs are good. And so it's a really strange experience 20 years after you wrote these songs. I was a kid. I was 20. It was right after 9-11 to be able to remix and remaster the songs and put them out 20 years later. It's a strange experience. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I'm so glad it holds up because I think it does hold up. And even if it doesn't, like it was a moment in my life. Uh, where I was that kid and I was just so live or die music. So yeah, it's a cool experience to have that come out now and have it sound good. For sure. And I, I'm sure with the, because you've lived in Germany now for, it's been under 10 years, right? Or is it longer than that? Like seven, seven, eight years, yeah. Okay, yeah. And so comparing and contrasting the way that you toured America and you observed a lot of different scenes and had that experience and then now have had the experience of living in a different country and seeing the way that people react to music over there and the industry and all that sort of stuff. How do you compare and contrast the two things? Is it just like their own completely unique ecosystems or do you see similarities that that kind of pull through? You mean like the way you're treated as a musician or the way people are about music? Yeah, I would say I would say both, actually. Like the first one, like the differences you notice in regards to the two touring experiences and then the way that people, you know, in general interact with music, especially from a DIY level. One of my favorite things in the world is watching bands from America 
play their first show in Germany. It's it, it, you can't even describe it because what happens in Germany is you, you get there, they get there, they bring you coffee. They're so happy that you have come here to play. And then there are just like endless crates of beer, all the food you can eat, a nice place to sleep at night. Like they just treat you so incredibly well. Uh, and most countries in Europe are like that. But Germany in particular, they treat bands so well. And you see these American bands, just their eyes just wide open, like what's happening? But in Germany, that just, that is just straight up, no, this is how you treat people who come and play for us. In that sense, it's amazing. But now when I go back to America and play, it's tough because when you get your two drink tickets, you're just like, what the fuck is this? And do you notice, I know that different countries have a lot of different parameters in regards to governmental support of the arts. And yeah, do you notice anything in regards to that connectivity in Germany? Or is that something that is completely off the radar? Where I live in Münster, most of the venues are actually funded by the city. So they had no like danger of closing down during COVID. They're always taken care of. They're funded by the city, the arts, things like that. It's that way in a lot of cities where the gov- the cities fund these places to have the shows and stuff, which is amazing. There's other places like a buddy of mine who booked shows in Switzerland. He used to give me a ridiculous amount of money to play for 30 minutes to open for a band. And come to find out the city gives them $150,000 a year to just as a budget to pay bands to come play. This doesn't exist in America in most places. In Norway up there, if you're in a band, the government will pay you to be in a band and record and pay for everything. Yeah, it's much different. The support for the arts over here is a lot different than what it is in the States, for sure. Oh, yeah. That's the the completely unintended, I wouldn't even say consequence, but unintended recipient of so much of the Scandinavian support of arts is all the black metal bands that can exist for 20 plus years and are just like, oh, yeah, I work at a record store and I put out some music, <laughs> but I'm fine. Yeah, I, yeah. I can make it work. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And the uh, the last thing, the production work that you've done, because you've worked at a studio now for many years, correct or no? I work with a studio. Okay. Tim Van Dorn, he, Tim Van Dorn has Big Dog Studios in, in Belgium and produced records there over the years. Yeah. And I, I just got out of the studio with him recently after two years. I haven't been there, but just finished up a record with a guy named Billy Lyre from Scotland. And it's, it's a hell of a record. I'm excited for people to hear it. That's awesome. Do you, I presume, because you've been doing it for a while, you enjoy that aspect of being engineer, producer, whatever role you can fill for bands that that provides you a little bit of a different experience in working with music? Yeah, to me, making a record is the most incredible thing in the world. I know people, some people do not like being in the studio. It's tough. I love it. I think being able to make a record is the, is the most amazing thing in the world. And I think, I think what I bring to it is more, I think I have a good ear and I think with writing it helps, but I think it's more, I can relate to the people that I work with who don't have full confidence in what they're doing, which I think is part of everybody, but it's almost easier for me to get in the room with someone else and bring the best out of them than it is for me to do it myself. I think I see the potential in what's going on and I like writing and lyrics, music, all that stuff. I don't know. I think it's the most fun thing in the world. And I just look at it like like that. This is your record. But if you trust me, let's see what we can do. If you can try some different things or let's get the best out of this. Kind of sure. Thing. Yeah. Sure. It's good. It's fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. But Joe, I really appreciate you hanging out with me late in your evening and let, yeah, letting us reminisce about all the good old times, battle times, and everything in between. <laughs> Man, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I've looked at all the people on your podcast and I I feel pretty honored to be amongst them. So thank you for having me. That was quite a pleasant chat. If you noticed a little bit of an audio difference than what the show typically is, that's because we were recording over Skype. His computer was giving him massive, massive issues, and uh, we had to pivot. You know, that's what happens from time to time. So thank you very much, Joe. 
from Smoker Fire. And thank you very much to Casey over at Iodine Records for suggesting the idea and hooking us up. And it was uh, it was great. He actually, it was very sweet because uh, Joe from Smoker Fire actually emailed uh, Casey after the fact and was like, that was one of the you know more fun interviews that I've ever had. And anytime I give that experience to a person, it makes me really, really happy. Next week, I have another podcast nerd, but he also plays in a band that I was obsessed with and still am obsessed with. His name is Jason Mazzola. He played in a band called Count Me Out, currently plays in a band called Cloak Dagger, and he also does a very cool podcast on Revelation Records called the Where It Went podcast. But um, yeah, I actually had to punish punish Jason for a bit to uh, go on the show to be like, dude, I know, because I asked him gosh, it was, I don't know, maybe about five or so years ago to be like, Hey, would you be interested in this? And at that time he just, uh, he just wasn't. <laughs> now it wasn't because that he was like, you know, press shy or anything like that, but he just, uh, yeah, just didn't have any interest in it, but we made it happen. I convinced him that, uh, we were going to have a fun conversation and we did. So next week I got Jason on the podcast until then, please be safe, everybody. <laughs>